Hey, podcast family, you know, periodically we have episodes called You Asked, We Answered, or your Q&A or whatever, something like that. Well, we're calling this one You Asked, We Answered. So I want to focus today on three specific questions. One question that I received multiple times in the last uh, 24 hours since our last podcast came out regarding propranolol and labor, uh, and then two others that you may have thought of or not thought of, and we've got an answer for. So we try to limit this to three topics because then it gets kind of voluminous, and we want to be very targeted in our approach and be evidence-based. So I'm going to just focus on three, and one is super easy. The first, which has to do with our most recent episode on propranolol use and labor, First question, I got like 10 questions on this uh, all overnight, both from the U.S. and international, uh, about that episode on propranolol and labor. And the, and the question is this, hey, does ACOG have any kind of statement on that? I know you said ACOG doesn't uh, you know, favor it. It's not really a thing in integrated and obstetrical practice. But does ACOG have some kind of statement? And the answer is absolutely. And it has a recent statement because that just came out in January 2024. That's part of ACOG's clinical practice guideline number eight that we actually highlighted not long ago. That covers the first and second stage labor management. Actually, propranolol has a little uh, guest appearance in it, and I'm going to tell you what ACOG says. Now, it's not going to be anything mind-blowing because we kind of alluded to this in that previous episode, but it's a great question, and because I received, actually, I'm looking at our account now, 11 questions, all asking the same thing, we got to answer it. So that's going to be our brief, uh, our, our most brief response because it is what it is. So that's the first one. Second, uh, I found this pretty interesting and it was very timely because, no joke, an article just came out this month, January 2024, that kind of helps to answer this. And so this second question came from outside the U.S. as well in Canada. And it was, you know, I understand that the data on birth control pills and depression or mood in general is super varied. And that's an understatement. It definitely is. But is there any data that maybe some of the depression stuff and mood is actually linked to the placebo pills, uh, to the breaks versus continuous? Uh, and there's an absolute answer on that. Again, we've got information that just came out from um, this month, January 2024, in the Journal of Affective Disorders that looked at birth control pill use overall and incidence of depression. So we're going to answer that. And then we're going to talk about uh, data that just came out again recently within the, the fall of 2023, focusing on the placebo pills. And does that potentially aggravate altered mood, mainly depression? Good data on that as well. So we're going to relate all of this, including uh, past episodes that we did around the summer of last year, 2023, because I was so on fire. I was so angry and irritated about a publication that came out that said, ah, we have de facto proof, absolute proof that birth control pill uh, is linked to depression. And we tore that up. All right. So I'm not going to get into that episode. You can go back into the archives to look at that. But we'll, we'll touch on it and give this new data about uh, the Journal of Affective Disorders and the incidence of depression on the pill. Knowing, of course, that there's some limitations to that study. And then we're going to focus on the specific issue here of the placebo pills and mood. 
Super interesting. We'll talk about all that. And then the third has to do with a question that I've received you know, periodically over the months as they go and they kind of accumulate. I'm like, okay, I'm getting this as repeat questions. I think we should put this out. And it's a good one. And the question is, if a patient has had the quadrivalent HPV vaccine in the past, is there any benefit to giving her the nine-valent HPV vaccine at treatment for CIN2 or above, like with a cone or at a leap. Remember, of course, that ACOG does actually recognize the value of HPV vaccination as an adjuvant with a certain caveat. So we're going to answer that caveat, and then we're going to answer, is there any value, is there any data that if somebody has a quadrivalent, that there's benefit to getting the nonovalent? Is that a thing, or is that not a thing? So we're going to cover that. So those are our three questions. What does ACOG say about propranolol uh, as a labor stimulant or as a labor adjuvant? We're going to talk about birth control pill use and depression and the pill-free interval. And then we're going to wrap this up with HPV vaccination as adjuvant to CIN2 or above therapy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right. So look, I've said this many times. I'm going to say it again. So sorry if you're tired of hearing it. This podcast community is so cool. I mean, the ability, again, that we can reach out to each other and go, hey, I heard X, Y, and Z, and it triggered this question, or what do you think about this? And I'm telling you, I mean, it's a little time consuming, but um, we, we, we take pleasure we, we, in responding to this. We, we get to learn stuff uh, by reading some comments, and sometimes it gives great uh, podcast ideas to, to do a topic. So I, I do encourage you to reach out, um, and we do read them, and we do try to respond when there's a response that's required. Sometimes we just give a thumbs up, like, hey, thanks. I, and I'm not, guys, if you ever get a thumbs up from me, I'm not being rude, uh, and, and Mike's not trying to ignore you. It's just, uh, if it's something really quick, like, hey, this thing really made my day, and you helped me with patient conundrum uh, XYZ, perfect, love it, thumbs up, uh, and then we move on. But if it's something that requires a comment, then we definitely do. All right. So having said all that, I do want to answer a little bit more about ACOG and their stance on propranolol as a potential rescue medication for labor. Okay, so ACOG does touch on this just briefly in its January 2024 obstetrical uh, practice guidance number eight that we covered again when we went into details about the big key points here on first and second stage of labor management. And I didn't get into the propranolol issue then because I wanted to leave that off. I knew we were going to visit it at some point. And to be quite honest, and I'm super thankful, obviously, for ACOG. I'm, I mean, I, I love what they do. I'm very thankful for how kind they've been to me and the opportunities that they have given me. Uh, and just so humble. I mean, the people you talk about, dedicated folks, dedicated folks. But when I read this from the ACOG clinical practice guidance, I'm like, oh, wait, is that all the info? Where's Where's the rest of the stuff on propranolol? Now, to be very clear, um, they talk about two of the main studies that we covered in our episode. So absolutely, we talked about the same thing um, that they have, but and they leave it kind of at that. We kind of went much more into detail um, into the history of the studies uh, and the, the, the more of the data on both sides. Okay, but this is under their, quote, other interventions, end quote, section of that 
practice guidance. In this section, ACOG does include that 2016 meta-analysis that we talked about in our podcast. Remember, that was the one that took a look at six RCTs and said, hey, you know, maybe when using the latent phase for induction, um, it seemed to reduce the number of C-sections when using the latent phase, but not really in the active phase. But the data was really heterogeneous, and it's not a solid win. But at least on the good side, it didn't seem to have any adverse neonatal issues. So they said, yeah, might could, maybe. Okay. And they also pointed to the 2023 RCT that we also covered in our episode that showed, yeah, didn't seem to do anything at all. So one said yes, and then the other said no. Okay. Now, the short of it is that that's all the info that ACOG gives. In our episode, we go a little bit deeper. We give much more data to be more uh, holistic in this, to be more data heavy. But it all comes down to this. And the reason that ACOG didn't really expand on this is because, number one, that's definitely not mainstream integrated into obstetrical practice. Two, this is not the focus of uh, this practice guidance, it was had to do with, with labor timing, uh, allowance of labor when the maternal fetal condition allows, uh, and making the previous obstetrical care consensus, number one, um, uh, much more clear, especially in regards to uh, active pushing in the second stage versus delayed pushing, all right? That's the focus. So it all comes down to, in these uh, two little paragraphs under other interventions that focus on propanolol, it states, quote, Additional data are needed to provide guidance on this intervention, and routine use is not recommended, end quote. All right, so that's ACOG stance. So do they have a stance on propranolol as a labor stimulant? Um, yeah, kind of. They give one example where, yes, it kind of did seem to do something in the lane phase, and then another study that said pretty much didn't do anything. So remember that words mean something here, guys, all right? So ACOG's recommendation is we need much more data and, quote, routine use, end quote, is not recommended. So you got to learn how, how you got to remember to read things scientifically. And remember, words mean stuff. So routine use is like universal. We're going to integrate this into everybody get uh, everybody's uh, uh, plan for induction. Or this is absolutely what to do for dysfunctional labor or prolonged latent phase. That's routine use. Absolutely not. But if you notice, the rebuttal to that would be, well, is there a place then for shared decision-making and selective use? Now, it didn't get into that. That is all the final ACOG stance. Quote, additional data is needed to provide guidance on this intervention, and routine use is not recommended, end quote. So you got to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't listened to our immediate past one, where we dive into that data a little bit more. Um, because remember, as we said before, having conflicting data is different than having data that shows it absolutely doesn't work or not having any data at all. So routine use is not recommended. That begs the question, is there a place for selective, very selective as a last endeavor? And my answer is maybe. Okay, so you got to go back and listen to that. But the question was, uh, what does ACOG say? He says we need more data. Definitely not ready for mainstream. And if you're going to use it, know it's conflicting. Patients should know that. Nursing staff should know that. We all want to be on the same pa- on the same bo- uh, plan here. That if the patient is really adamant about avoiding the C-section and she's otherwise at wit's end, unless there's a pressing maternal and fetal indication where delivery is necessary, perhaps, maybe, and as my wife says, you might could think about it. 
All right, that answers question number one. I told you, very directed because it is what it is. I'm reading it directly out of the obstetrical practice guidance number eight. Additional data is needed to provide guidance and routine use is not recommended. So we've tackled one question, and now we're going to move on to our second, which had to do with birth control pills and the potential for mood disturbances during the placebo week. Is that a thing? And the answer is yes. But before I get into that, uh, I I found the previous podcast that we did that uh, really broke down the the latest data, one of the last sets of controversies on this that came out on June 2023. Okay, So the title of that podcast was The Pill Causes Depression? That's not a statement. That's a question mark after that. Uh, New data 2023. That came out on June the 13th. We're not going to go over that episode, but if you want to go back, you can listen to why I was so irritated by that new piece of data. Because the last thing that we want to do, as I stated in that episode, is discourage women from using an effective form of contraception um, that may or may not be linked to depressive issues because the data is all over the place, all right? Yes, I get that. There is definitely some published evidence that there's mood deterioration with the pill. The problem with that, as we stated on June the 13th, is that there's so many factors that go into that personal history, other uh, pre-existing um, psychosocial issues, um, family history of depression, Uh, uh, BMI issues in terms of body dysmorphic issue, relationship issues. There's so many factors that to say clearly it's the pill um, seems a little gray. All right. So to be very clear right now, there is absolutely no solid evidence that the pill causes depression. There's controversial evidence, but it's not solid that it does. Actually, there's a new publication that just came out in the Journal of Affective Disorders that came out on January the 1st, 2024, the title of which is Association of Oral Contraceptive Pill Use and Depression Among U.S. Women. So, okay, you're like, let's hear it. This is exactly what uh, we're talking about, right? Well, unlike the June 2023 publication that concluded that there was a link this uh, this data review, and again, it wasn't a prospective study, it was using an old database, which was the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey back from 2005 and 2012. So let me stop there for a minute. This does not include some of the newer birth control pill formulations or doses, all right? So this was 2005 and 2012, uh, and then they looked at major depression Uh, as defined by a PHQ-9 scale, all right? So this is all information that was already collected in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 2005 to 2012 using that data set to see if that correlated with major depression. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if this data was from 2005 to 2012, Um, Why is this being published in January of 2024? That's a good question. The answer is because that one set of data, which was full of information and different data points, uh, has looked at a lot of different things. But because of this continued controversy with depression, they wanted to specifically now focus on that with the use of the PHQ-9 scores, all right? 
So this was uh, over 6,200 women, so 6,200 women, actually 6,239, that were the ages of 18 to 55 who were included in the study, okay? Now, it was current OCP use compared to former uses of OCPs or non-users, okay? And then it was very easy. Let's take a look at their PHQ-9 and see what the prevalence of major depression was uh, in those who are currently on the pill and those who are not on the pill, okay? So this was cross-sectional study, again, not prospective, not an RCT, uh, based on a previous data set that ended in 2012, Okay. Short answer is, quote, the prevalence of major depression among women using OCPs may be lower than in former users of birth control pills, end quote. So let's stay, let's stop right there. So in this publication from January 2024 in the journal Affective Disorders, um, yeah, this said, hey, if they're on the pill, they actually have less depression. You're like, oh, come on. Seriously? Yeah. And they give a po- two main possible reasons why. Number one, uh, and the biggest reason is that perhaps the reassurance uh, against uh, an unplanned or uh, mistimed pregnancy, now that that's taken care of uh, with effective contraception, that also affects mood. So just the fact that they're on some kind of birth control uh, helps relieve uh, that mood and anxiety. Now, this wasn't specifically for anxiety. This was depression, but we know those two are co-variables, okay? So that's the first thing. It's just that if they don't have to worry about reproductive issues when it's not desired, perhaps that has a positive effect on mood. Um, The second, which is tied into that, isn't the reproductive aspect of it, but the more biological aspect, which is, hey, if they have less PMS, they have less cramps, uh, they have uh, less hormonal ups and downs uh, because of hormonal stabilization, then they're going to feel better. All having to do with direct components of the pill, either as uh, reproductive benefits or as physical benefits and reduction in PMS. So that's one theory. The second theory is the reason that women had a lower incidence or prevalence of depression while on the pill, but higher off the pill, in other words, uh, compared to those who were non-users or who stopped, was because that's called survivor bias. Now, survivor bias says that you basically kick over the finding over to another group once you leave the initial affected group. So it could be that those women who had depressive symptoms while on the pill left the pill um, and jumped ship and then marked themselves as depressive now off the pill. Does that make sense? That's called survivor bias, right? Now, there's no way to figure out which one was uh, the true cause of this, but I just found it interesting that while, you know, OCPs get thrown under the bus for depressive issues, the data has never been absolutely clear on that. Uh, And this recent publication from January of this month, January 2024, shows, yeah, that that's actually not what was found based on this cross-sectional study. Here is another interesting finding directly from uh, this manuscript, from this article. I want to read it directly so I don't want to misspeak or misquote it. Quote, 
This is further supported by the fact that there was no difference in major depression between women who use birth control pills and those who had never used birth control pills, end quote. Now, what it's talking about there is this potential issue of survivor effect, okay, the survivor bias, which is where women who have severe symptoms of depression are more likely to discontinue the pill use than those who experience maybe mild depressive symptoms and continue to use it because they're like, eh, it's not that bad, you know. I'll deal with it and I'd rather have good birth control than stop it uh, and risk in a mistimed pregnancy, all right? So, but the big take-home there from that statement, did y'all get that? There was no significant difference between women who were using the pill actively and those who had never used the pill. So, short of it is, according to this cross-sectional study from an old data set, it seems that there was really no association between depression and the pill. And that's very reassuring. And that's something that we can tell our patients. Now, on a similar note, there is a new... Uh, a new animal model is actually on on a on a uh, mouse model that can help explain why that's the case. Okay, now I'm not going to get into this mouse study because it's kind of weird. But basically, they fed <laughs> little mice a combination of estrogen um, and levonorgestrel, or estrogen and a a more a less androgenic uh, progestin. Um, or sugar water, all right? They, they fed them these, these different options of birth control or placebo and then measured their stress response, their level of anxiety, uh, and their response to a pleasurable uh, exposure like uh, when they intake a sugary substance, all right? Now, yes, this was an actual study. Can you believe it? I'm, I'm going to give you the reference here in a minute, but it is a, a novel mouse study that can help explain Maybe why some women don't get depression. The short of it is in this study that was published in Hormonal Behavior, December of 2023, just last month, um, they found that the mice that had any kind of hormonal birth control, whether it was the levonorgestrel or the less androgenic type, the, the mouse seemed to exhibit less stress response. That's a good thing. They they didn't exhibit any increased anxiety. They didn't have any depressive effect or depressive behavior. Yes, you can measure that in a in a little mouse model. Um, but what they did find, oddly enough, is that those who experienced a pleasurable issue like a a, a sugary solution, they seem to have a blunted pleasure response. Okay, so super uh, helpful now. It's in a mouse model, but this is the first time that this has actually been looked at like this. So it seems to reduce a physiological stress response, which is good. That's we, we want less physiological stress. But at the same time, it may have blunted their pleasure response. Now, how that contributes to the whole mood issue and depression is completely unknown. And this research may just end with, with the mouse model. With, uh, with the mouse model. Uh, but it's super novel. It definitely is something that uh, should be discussed because at least in potentially can give credence to this idea that the birth control pill m- may not have the biological tendency to cause depression. Now, I, I know that that's upsetting a lot of people because you have patients just like I do who have anecdotally, they take the pill and they just feel a little off, like my mood is off. It happens to me at least once a week, okay? So I get that. How much of that is truly the pill versus other life stressors is almost impossible 
uh, to figure out. Now, there's there's links, there's temporal associations, but true causation is just really hard to figure out at this time. Okay, so once again, this mouse model that just came out in December, the title was a mouse model of oral contraceptive exposure, depression, motivation, and the stress response. Again, this was formally published December 2023. Now, I know some of you think I'm completely nuts and fabricating that. I would never do that. So I want to read you before I leave this mouse model because it's just so out there. These poor little mice. Can you imagine? Here's here's your little plunger uh, full of, of your ethanol estradiol and your levonorgestrel and then see how you work the maze. It's just wow. I mean, yes, that's a thing. And yes, you can actually measure their their level of anxiety, their level of motivation. Um, they even checked for weight gain. Okay, they even looked for that. So I'm going to read you just a little excerpt from this because again, it's fascinating. Uh, and this was actually led out of the uh, University of Michigan by the, the psychology department, okay, by a doctoral student there. So here's, here's how this reads, quote, in this study, young female mice drank a once daily hormone mix similar to taking the once daily pill. One group received a common pill combination of ethanol estradiol and levonorgestrel in a sugar solution. Another group received a newer formulation, estradiol and drospirinone, in the sugar solution, and the third group drank only the sugar solution. Researchers then studied the mouse's behavior, like swimming and preference for sugar, as well as their stress response. And here it is. Although oral contraceptives did not increase all depression-like behaviors, they did decrease pleasurable responses to the sugar, end quote. So there you go. Now, what does that prove? I'm not sure, except that in mouse models, it doesn't seem to make them depressed, uh, and it doesn't really change their behavior overall, but maybe they had less pleasure when they drank regular sugary drink. So let's leave the little mouse there, and let me tell you now, let's get into the issue about mood effects and the placebo interval. All right, we're almost done with our second question, which really had to do not with the little mice, but with the effect of mood on the birth control pill, specifically looking at the pill-free interval. It's no secret. It's no surprise. I hate the placebo pills. I mean, the original birth control pill was never meant to have them. It was meant to be a, a pseudo-pregnancy state, long-term use of continuous birth control, not cyclic, because there's no physiologic reason to have a withdrawal except and only really for reassurance of the patient that she's not pregnant. The issue with that is that now with ultra-low-dose pills, where it's basically functioning as, as a progestin only with a very low dose of estrogen for endometrial stabilization, um, you don't have enough tissue to really bleed at all. So sometimes women come in, they're like, well, I don't really bleed on my placebos, which my response is always, well, then why are you taking them? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have escape ovulation, which is rare anyway during the placebo time, but if some women are very prone to um to to have escape ovulation because they're very sensitive to the suppression that is going to happen during that time okay so there is no physiologic reason for placebo pills on the pill except for reassurance okay and i have a whole episode on that i know we did that like years ago 
um, called Are the Placebo Pills Necessary? Super fascinating history there. Basically, it was a combination of one of the chief uh, pharmacists uh, who made the pill, reconciling him that to his own moral uh, conflict because women were meant to cycle, right? I mean, that was natural. And somehow by taking that away, he was making it unnatural in his own mind. So he put placebos in. That joined together with uh, the sexual revolution in the late 60s and 70s and women just demanded their period uh, at the same time that the pill came on the scene. Uh, even though gynecologists were like, um, wait, you, you want to have more periods? <laughs> like, why? Um, but hey, you do you. I mean, and if, if, if that's, if you know somebody very close to you or if that's you who just loves to have a monthly bleed, that's absolutely fine. No problem with that, except remember every month it is a wasteful economy physiologically because that's why we have anemia. Uh, that's why we've got more iron deficiency. So cycles are there. The withdrawal bleed is to is to notify to be an obvious overt signal that attempted conception did not happen. That's the physiologic purpose of a cycle, right? Hey, didn't work, try again. Even though the patient may not be actually trying to get pregnant, that's the purpose. So on the pill, that purpose is now negated. It's obsolete. Does that make sense? So I've talked about this many times in the past. There is no physiological reason for placebos. Um, and I tell all of my patients to use it continuous if they so choose. Okay, they get to pick. But look at the perfect timing of this, because this was published September 27th, 2023. Guys, not long ago, right? We're talking three and a half, four months. So still very timely. And this came out of JAMA Network Open. The title is Mental Health Symptoms in Oral Contraceptive Users During Short-Term Hormone Withdrawal. The short-term hormone withdrawal uh, is the placebo week. And super fascinating because everybody has been looking at birth control pill use and depression. And it's even been looked at by type of progestin. It doesn't really plan out. Is it the dose of estrogen? No, that doesn't really plan out. Um, But nobody's really looked at, hey, is there a difference between continuous um, versus the using it cyclically and in that pill-free interval? Okay, And so this is what this study looked at. This was to see if there was a negative effect on mood during the placebos. Now, patients with pre-existing psychiatric uh, psychological conditions were not included. So we can't make any statement on that. Okay, Uh, But this is in the overall general population using the pill cyclically. And it was in those who were using the pill for six months or more. Right. These were not new starts. And it's in that prime age when depressive symptoms can occur, which is between the ages of 18 and 35. Okay, and so to be very clear, I'm reading it right here from the article, quote, individuals with psychiatric, neurologic or endocrinological disease and those taking other medications besides combination birth control pills were excluded from analysis, end quote. All right. So that's who we're talking about here. These patients were recruited between 2021 and 2022, and as a control group, they used patients with natural menstrual cycles, meaning no birth control pills, um, who were actually selected from a previous study, okay? So the patients were then looked at using a premenstrual symptom screening tool, the Beck Anxiety Inventory, and Beck Depressive Inventory to try to record their results. And what they found was uh, pretty eye-opening. Now, before I give you the results, this was a 
pretty broad kind of exposure. They used, quote, androgenic combination birth control pills, meaning like levonorgestrel, the early generation progestin, the, the androgen-based, 19-nor testosterone-based progestin, as well as anti-androgenic birth control to see if there was any difference uh, between the two. So super smart. At baseline, there was no significant group differences between the measured outcomes, okay? However, the researchers observed a 23% increase in mental health symptoms, a 12% increase in negative affect, and a 7% increase in anxiety among the birth control pill users overall during the pill pause compared with the active pill intake. Now, these values were comparable to the changes in the negative affect and anxiety and mental health symptoms that were observed during natural phases in the control group. So, what does this mean? Well, they tended to have most of the symptoms during the placebo week, um, not during the active pill at all. So let's marry these two data points, all right? You've got the publication from January using the previous old data set that said, hey, exposure to the pill didn't lead to depression. And now you have this uh, new publication uh, from September 2023 that showed, hey, it's not actually the pill itself. It's the pill withdrawal. It's the placebo that gives the negative mood, the increase in anxiety, uh, and the overall uh, uh, negative affect. Is that remarkable or what? This was also picked up in Psychiatry Advisor, uh, and most uh, of the commentaries that I've read on this, there's multiple, uh, say something like this, quote, These results question the usefulness of pill pauses from a mental health perspective, and it should be explored whether long-term combination birth control pill users benefit more from the mood-stabilizing effects of combination birth control in cases of continuous intake, end quote. Now, that comes out of Psychiatry Advisor and in their commentary that was published on October the 20th, 2023. Of course, I'll post this link on our reference page. But did y'all get that? That's a lot of words for saying um, probably best to take the pill continuous. And so if there's an effect on depression or negative mood and even anxiety on the pill, maybe it's not the pill itself. Maybe it's that exposure during the pill pause that's causing it. So again, there there is evidence for this, guys. Again, you can look this up uh, from JAMA Network Open. Fascinating, right? A whole new take on depression and the pill. Now, we're going to answer, we're going to make it plain because the question, remember, it's a little tricky. It's specifically asking about mood issues during the pill-free interval, not overall on the pill, just during the pill-free interval. That's a different issue, okay? So if somebody ever asks you, what is the uh, ACOG stance or the U.S. medical eligibility categorization of hormonal contraception and mood? That's a huge box, and I'm going to tell you what that is in a minute, because the U.S. medical eligibility chart from the CDC and the WHO don't mince any words about it. Okay, so you can have this argument all day long. Uh, Here's what the U.S. medical eligibility chart says. And I get it. Some of that stuff on there is not updated like SLE with antifossilipid antibodies is category three for progestin releasing IUS. You're like, why? I mean, that's not even a thing. You're right. It's just because uh, lupus patients with antifossilipid antibodies 
have a high risk of VTE overall. So that's why stuff gets kind of put into a higher risk, even though the effect of a progestin releasing IUS uh, on clotting factors is, is basically a nil. Okay, it's very small. To, to neg- negligible. So yes, I get it. There's some things on there that are not completely updated, uh, but we're going to make it work. So the, the question, remember, has to do specifically with mood or, or depression just during the pill-free interval. So there's a, when you're asked about hormonal contraception effect on mood, there's three answers. One, I'm going to give you the whole answer uh, as, a, as a big bucket, including Depo and the implant uh, and the pill just a big box according to ACOG and uh, U.S. medical eligibility chart. Then there is the issue of pill-free versus continuous, and that is evolving information, Um, but it's overall very reassuring. So to be very clear, according to the U.S. medical eligibility criteria, the chart and ACOG, quote, women with depressive disorders can use all methods of hormonal contraception. They are U.S. medical eligibility chart category one. Here it is, quote, because depressive symptoms do not appear to worsen with any method of hormonal contraception, including depomedroxyprogesterone acetate, end quote. Wow. Okay, so now that's, a, that's as contraception, hormonal contraception as a bucket, all right? So, as a bucket thrown all together, does it, do they affect mood? It doesn't seem to. Now, if you're asked specifically, pull out the pill, and could there be an association with the pill-free interval, that's where it gets a little gray. It's like, yes, but overall, see why the overall answer is, can the pill cause the depression? doesn't seem to. This also supports what we just covered uh, from the Journal of Affective Disorders based on that uh, redissection of old data that just current users didn't seem to have an increased risk of depression. So how does this go with the June 2023 publication saying, oh, clearly there's an association between depression and the pill? Number one, it's in the eye of the beholder. Number two, remember that uh, the, the most common comorbid condition in reproductive age women, barring you know some severe medical issue uh, or autoimmune condition, the most likely um, comorbid condition is what? It's a mood, it's an affect disorder. Uh, depression, anxiety, uh, those are just common. And so that's a huge confounder, which we talked about back in June of 2023. But to be very clear, ACOG and the U.S. medical eligibility uh, criteria considers all forms of hormonal contraception, specifically regarding depression, category one, which is knock yourself out because you know what will really make you depressed? A mistimed or undesired pregnancy. That's the bigger issue. This was again covered in ACOG's practice bulletin number 206 from February 2019 on the use of hormonal contraception in women with coexisting medical conditions. So to answer the question before we leave it, is there an association between negative uh, psychological impact with the pill during the placebo versus continuous? Yes, there seems to be. Now, to be, I don't, I don't want to misimplicate uh, this study at all. This did not compare continuous use. But it did find that there was pill aggravation. There was uh, mood aggravation during the pill-free interval. So 
Can we make the assumption that continuous use is better? Well, it's better for chronic pelvic pain. It's better for dysmenorrhea. But I want to be very clear. I, I, it, while it's an easy assumption to make, that was not directly studied here. All right. So the question is, um, is it wise to use pill-free interval in those who may have mood exacerbation during that time? The answer, of course, is no. What it doesn't answer is, is it make the point absolutely that continuous birth control pill use would prevent that and that did not answer that, okay? I do like continuous birth control pill use. I think this study leads evidence to that, but that study did not specifically look at continuous pill. That's what that quote read from psych, uh, Psychiatry Advisor. Um, it said, we need more studies to see if maybe continuous use helps prevent that, but we definitely know here, according to this publication, that the pill pause, the placebo week, is not doing anyone any favors, all right? So to be clear, it was a pill pause that was found uh, causative in this case, and it did not look at continuous use. But there's many other advantages to continuous use, and it'd be nice to include uh, mood effects in there if possible. All right, podcast family, we are down to our final question, and this one is an easy one, all right? So I left the easy one towards the end, which had to do with, hey, if somebody had a uh, quadrivalent vaccine in the past, and then they get treatment for CIN2+, uh, plus, so CIN2 or more, um, is it helpful to get kind of a booster with a, a non-avalent, uh, Gardasil 9, okay? And the short answer is, uh, hold on, we'll get to that in just a minute. I was told I needed to take a little pause there because that was too much info. So hopefully that returned on our brain circuits uh, as we give you this final answer. No, the HPV vaccine is not a booster. So to be very clear, there is data and ACOG does support and ASECP supports it. Well, actually, they supported it before ACOG gave their statement because ASCCP gave that encouraging news uh, for adjuvant HPV vaccination after CIN2 plus treatment in the unvaccinated population. That's the caveat there. But they made that recommendation in January of 2023. And then ACOG gave their practice advisory in July of 2023. So yes, ASCCP committee opinion was first. That was published in Lower Genital Tract Disease. And the title of ASCCP's committee opinion is, quote, adjuvant human papillomavirus vaccine for patients undergoing treatment for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, end quote. Very similar, of course, to ACOG's practice advisory that came in July of 2023, quote, adjuvant human papillomavirus vaccination for patients undergoing treatment for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia 2 plus, end quote. Everybody agrees. If a patient is unvaccinated, that's the caveat, and they're getting treatment for this, absolutely give them the CDC protocol for a vaccine. Now, which vaccine? Well, if you're in an area where only the dual vaccine, the bivalent is available, there's plenty of data for that. If there's day if you have a quadrivalent, absolutely use that. If the Gardasil 9, the nanovalent is available, absolutely use that. It's unclear if there's one better than the other. There's there's old data, even from 2013, that a bivalent, 16 and 18, uh, at time of treatment helps prevent recurrence, all right? So the short answer is, can you give HPV vaccination as an adjuvant um, 
for for CIN to care. Absolutely. With the caveat is they have not yet been vaccinated. So both the practice advisory and ASCCP says, hey, this is meant for the unvaccinated. Now, if they're previously been vaccinated, there's this is not a booster. Okay, so giving a booster like, hey, I know you had a quadrivalent. I'm going to give you a non-avalent here to kick it in. There's no data for that. Would it work? I don't know. Maybe. But there's no data. So the short answer is if they've already completed a vaccine series, then you don't have to give them any more. Okay, you don't have to switch gears and give them another another type. However, if they did not complete the series, that's different. So let's say somebody was supposed to get a three uh, vaccine protocol and they only had the first shot. They're not completely vaccinated. You can do catch up vaccination because that would read as, quote, unvaccinated because they didn't finish the series. All right. Now, there's a lot of interpretation there. The easiest, the black and white is they've received zero Gardasil in the past, zero vaccine of HPV, and now they got treatment for CIN2 with a Libra cone. Give them the vaccination. Follow the CDC protocol. Nobody questions that. Where it's unclear is, well, how? what is unvaccinated? Is it zero? Yes. Is it not complete in the series? Maybe. Remember, there's even some data that even one vaccine is, is protective. But in terms of maximum protection against regression, I'm sorry, maximum protection against recurrence, you want regression, um, they, they should have ideally have completed the whole series. So for those who are completely unvaccinated, never received one injection, yes, absolutely give it according to CDC protocol, as long as they're immunocompetent. Uh, and if they started it but didn't finish, absolutely continue catch-up vaccination because you just need to complete the CDC protocol. Both ASCCP and ACOG practice advisory say we adhere to the CDC protocol. So if they haven't had it or haven't completed it, finish it per CDC guidance. Okay. Remember, basically, if you're over like 15, uh, it's three injections. And if you're under 15, it's just two injections. So otherwise, if they did all the vaccination and every shot was given, no, there's no data as of right now, it may be coming, that a booster uh, helps for that. Right. It's only in the unvaccinated and in the immunocompetent. Now, there's other trials going on there, like the addition of imiquimod, Aldera, if that, in addition to HPV, causes even more uh, protection against uh, recurrence and helps with aggression. Um, but that's, that's a whole other thing, and that's not solid uh, data yet. All right. So if they've been already exposed, they do not need a booster. But if they did not complete the series and or are completely unvaccinated, absolutely give HPV vaccine after treatment of CIN2 plus because it does help prevent recurrence. All right. Well, podcast family, we hit three questions. One, ACOG's stance on propranolol for labor stimulation as it stands right now. Second, we covered the whole issue of birth control pill. Does it cause depression? Probably not. But the placebo weeks are probably not doing anybody any favors. That's good to know. Uh, plus, we talked about a cool little mouse study. Uh, and then number three, uh, we talked about HPV vaccination as adjuvant after CIN2 care. So that brings us to a wrap. We have done the You've Asked, We've Answered commitment to our podcast. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.